Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. Today we'll be reading from Mark 14. And when they had sang a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And immediately, while they were still speaking, Judas came out, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now they portray, they, now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, Also, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little, while the bystanders said again, while the bystanders said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. He'll say, you can have a seat. Good morning, my name is Aaron Nelson and I'm the director of our college ministry here. It's called Salt Company and this July I'm ending my fourth year working here and it has been a complete honor and a pleasure to do so. Today we're going to start off with some American history. So 1775, Revolutionary War, there's this field general. And this is a decorated field general. Like this isn't your run-of-the-mill field general. He has led successful attacks on the British defense. And he has led successful defenses against the British powers. And in all of these, he's actually played a pretty big role. Like he hasn't just been a bystander. He's been pretty active. He's helped build some of these plans. He's played a big role in some of the successes that the Americans have had up to this point. Yet he's always felt he didn't receive the recognition that he deserves. 
And we come to 1777, two years later at the Battle of Bemis Heights, and General Horatio Gates puts together this battle plan. And it is a bad plan, not a good plan. And so our field general goes rogue. He goes Ethan Hunt, and he creates his own battle plan. He's like, I know this is what General Gates wants to do, but here's what we're going to do. This is going to be successful, and they do it. And they execute, and it's a smashing success. They end up not only winning that battle, but it's that very battle that convinces the French forces to join the American forces in the Revolutionary War. But when General Gates wrote his report to George Washington, he took credit for the battle plan. And so our field general has had enough. And so shortly after that, our field general starts secret negotiations with British forces to surrender in return for money and power in the British Army. This field general went on to become the most famous traitor in American history and also the greatest insult in every grade school classroom during every American history unit ever, and we know him as Benedict Arnold. Right? I remember in grade school, we would be throwing around the insult of Benedict Arnold at our friends left and right. It was crazy. It's like someone took your Bosco stick and you called him Benedict Arnold. It's completely out of context. But we used this as like a massive insult and it was one of the worst things you could hear from somebody. Me, a traitor, a man of betrayal, never. And this, this wasn't something, this idea of being, this idea of betrayal isn't just something we learned in our American history unit. It's actually something many of us are all too familiar with. I still remember the first time I remember feeling betrayed. It was grade school. My grade school's girlfriend, my grade school's girlfriend's best friend came up to me at recess. She said, hey, she doesn't feel like dating anymore. She wants to date another boy. And then she ran off and just enjoyed the rest of her recess like nothing happened. And left me devastated. And I felt this deep sense of betrayal. But many of us have felt betrayal from things much deeper than the loss of a great school girlfriend. Many of us are familiar with even those close to us betraying us. And I'm actually going to ask you to go there. To go to some of those places of betrayal in your head that you've experienced in life. Maybe it was a coworker or family member or a close friend, maybe a spouse, or even your own child. And many of these betrayals have deep traumatic effects on us. And oftentimes moving forward after betrayal can feel incredibly challenging, if not impossible. But today, as we look at Jesus' closing days, he's going to be experiencing the depths of betrayal in which you and I will never be acquainted with, in which you and I will never come close to. And yet, as he experiences these depths of betrayal, we watch him respond, and his commitment to God never wavers, his love for his people never breaks, and him being the perfect example of a disciple is never in question. 
And as we'll see today, it's actually, we hear betrayal and we automatically go to Judas, but we're actually going to see much more than Judas betrayed Jesus today. But before we start into today's story, we've got a lot of ground to cover. As you saw Landon reading, we're going to be jumping around a little bit. We've got a lot to get through. But before we start, let's remember where we find ourselves in the path of our king. So last week, uh, we saw Judas right before the Passover. He goes and makes a deal with the Jewish leaders for money in return for handing Jesus over to them. And then Jesus and the disciples, they sit around a table and they share a Passover meal together. And Jesus institutes communion there. And that's where we find ourselves today is following the Passover meal after Jesus has instituted communion. And the disciples and Jesus, they're singing hymns together. And after they're done singing hymns together, they head out to the Mount of Olives And as they're on the Mount of Olives, Jesus stops and he addresses the disciples and he comes out swinging. He says, you will all fall away. Remember, he's he's speaking to his most devoted followers here. You will all fall away. The Greek word for fall away here is scandalizo. And when Jesus says this, this word scandalizo in its original meaning meant to stumble or lapse. So Jesus here isn't predicting a complete and utter rebellion from the disciples. It's more of a momentary lapse in commitment, a momentary betrayal of Jesus. We know what it's like to momentary lapse. We've all started our diet plans or our workout plans and had a momentary lapse of commitment to those types of things. Like this is kind of in the vein of where he's going. Like it's not gonna be a forever. It's not gonna be completely walking away but it's going to be a momentary lapse in commitment to Jesus. He says, you will all fall away, and then he quotes Zechariah. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And Jesus' use of Zechariah here paints an accurate picture of what will happen when Jesus is arrested. For the original readers of this, they would have had an image invoked immediately when they read Jesus' words here. They were much more familiar with a shepherd in his role than maybe we are. But if you don't know this about sheep, and I'm gonna put this as kindly as possible, they're not the most independent of animals. They need some help, they need a shepherd. And sheep, when they don't have a shepherd, they go all kinds of different directions. They get lost, they don't know what to do with their life. And it's not like they travel in packs, they like split up and go different directions. And without a shepherd, that ultimately leads them to death, it leads them to danger. And that's the picture that this would invoke for the original readers. But this isn't a condemnation from Jesus to the disciples here, it's a warning. But it's not a condemnation, because let's look at how he follows that up. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus, in the midst of announcing the disciples' betrayal and their denial, he tells them, even after all of this happens, I'll return back to you. Even in the midst of you denying me to people, even in the midst of you scattering in my darkest moment, I will return back to you. And we get an early glimpse of Jesus' heart for his followers. But then classic Peter. 
Peter hears this and he can't believe what he's hearing. Jesus, are you serious right now? I, it's, it's, so, it's honestly so arrogant. Peter like looks at the other disciples behind them. He's like, maybe they'll fall away, but not me. No shot, I'm gonna fall away. And Jesus, and I can like hear his voice as he said this. It's made up in my own head. I'm not promising you he said it this way, but this is how I hear it. Peter says this, and Jesus looks at him. He says, Peter, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And the word Jesus used for deny here, this isn't like partial denial. It is full denial of the personhood of Jesus. Complete and utter denial of Jesus' role. Not only is he going to deny him, he's going to deny him soon. He says, before the sun comes up, before the rooster quote, crows twice, you're going to have denied me, fully denied me three times. And Peter's still like, no way. Not me. And we can hear this arrogance, this self-sufficiency, this self-security boil up from Peter of his own abilities. He goes as far as to say, even if I must die, I will not deny you. He's so confident in his own ability. Even with Jesus being the one standing there telling him he's going to do it, Peter can't accept that he could ever be capable of doing something like that. And the other disciples hear Peter do this and they're like, yeah, us too, we won't either. And this will actually be the last interaction that the disciples all together have with Jesus until after the resurrection, this emphatic denial that they would ever reject Jesus. And so they go from this place, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus sneaks away and he prays, and as he comes back later, off in the distance a large crowd approaches carrying swords and clubs. And as they approach, being sent by the Jewish leaders, Judas is leading them. One of the 12 and Judas comes face to face with Jesus. And in verse 45, it says that he exclaimed, Rabbi! And he kissed him. And this kiss is what sealed Jesus' fate. This was the sign that Judas told the guards he would do to signify the man they should arrest. For me, in this moment, every time I read this, as an observer 2,000 years later, this has felt betrayal for me. This isn't just conceptual, like I, I read this and I watch it go down in my head and I feel myself get angry. I can feel my chest tighten, I can feel my ears get hot because not only is Judas betraying Jesus, he's mocking Jesus. He, he exclaims rabbi, which is a phrase of honor at the time. And then he kisses him, a sign of affection. Judas is mocking the savior of the world as he betrays him, and it makes me angry. And so I can relate to what we learn in John as Peter draws his sword and cuts off one of the guards' ear. Like, I think I'd be in an ear-cutting mood too. I get it. Peter's watching this man who he has sat beside Jesus and Judas together. 
So Peter understands the depths of betrayal Jesus is experiencing here. And so I get it. I feel the anger alongside of Peter, but not our king. Not our king. Jesus, as we see in the other gospel accounts, picks up the ear of the guard and restores it back onto him. And then he says to Judas and the crowd, he has the disciples behind him. He says to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. These people here are not here after justice. They're not here to give a proper consequence, a, po a proper punishment for a specific act. They're here seeking vengeance. They're here seeking to wipe off everything Jesus stands for. As one theologian says it, this is just a bunch of people filled with hell-bent animosity for Jesus. That at all costs want him to be wiped off the face of the earth and everybody to forget about him. And yet, Jesus stands before them. He says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And then it gets its own verse here. And they all left him and fled. We can't miss the power of this final statement from Jesus. The scripture he's referring to is Isaiah 53 when he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. And Isaiah 53 is a foreshadowing to what the son of God is going to experience. We're just gonna look at a short part of it, verses seven through nine. This is talking about Jesus. It says he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So Jesus here, when he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled, he knows what that means. He knows what letting the scriptures be fulfilled means. Jesus is not some passive participant in his death. He knew what was coming. He knew the path that he had chosen. And yet he continues over and over again to choose the path. He knew his path meant one of his 12 closest followers to completely betray him. He knew that his path included his closest followers to all scatter in his darkest moments. He knew that his path meant he was going to be beaten, tortured, mocked, and murdered. And he knew that that path meant that while he was on that cross, he was going to be for forsaken by his father. He knew all of that, and yet he chose that path. Why? Because his love for his people far outweighed his fear of death. His love for his kids far outweighed his fear of death. 
Every time I thought about this scene, every time I think about Jesus' love outweighing his fear, I'm brought back to a movie scene from A Quiet Place. If you've seen it, you're going to be able to picture this scene vividly. If not, listen, it's five years old. Don't blame me for spoilers, but this is a big one. There's this scene where John Krasinski, who plays the dad, he puts his two kids in a truck to try to protect them. And there's this creature who the creature is provoked by sound. He attacks sound when he hears it. And this creature comes along and he knocks over the dad. And when he does that, one of the kids screams. And so this creature jumps onto the truck and is trying to destroy whatever it was that made the sound, which is the kids. And John Krasinski, who was laying on the ground from getting knocked over, stands back up and he looks at the truck and in the back window, he sees his daughter looking out at him. And he makes eye contact with her and she's deaf. And so he signs to her, I love you. It's a very dramatic scene. He says, I have always loved you. And you see tears fill the girl's eyes. And it pans back to John Krasinski and he lets out this blood-curdling scream. And you see tears fill his eyes as he screams because he knows what that scream is doing. It's taken the imminent death that awaited his children if he didn't do anything about it and it removes their death and it puts it on himself. And so he knows as he's screaming what it means. It means the end of his life. It means his own difficulty in affliction, but it means the saving of his kids. How is he able to do this? Because his love, far, his love for his kids far outweighed his fear of death. And that's why Jesus chose this path. It's because his love for you, his love for me, far outweighed his fear of death. And so he goes. He gets arrested, he gets put on trial, and it's not a fair trial. It's a more of a formality to get to his crucifixion. And towards the end of the trial, they finally ask him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus is done veiling who he is. He says, I am. I am. And they hear it, and they yell, blasphemy. And the trial ends with them mocking and beating him. In the meantime, during Jesus' trial, Mark takes us back to Peter. And Peter is down below in the courtyards, sitting by the fire, trying to stay warm. And as he's sitting there, a servant girl notices him. She comes up to him and she's like, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. And Peter does what many of us have done in our lives when we've been caught. He plays dumb. He says, I neither know nor understand what you mean. He plays dumb. And as he does this, as he's finished talking to her, he gets up and he heads out to the gateway, away from the fire where he's lit up. Maybe people won't recognize him in the shadows of the gateway. And then Mark gives us a clue here. The rooster crowed. There's one. And as Peter is standing in the gateway, I don't know if it's the same servant girl or a different servant girl, but whatever it is, these servant girls are a pain in Peter's butt because one of the girls comes up to the bystanders who are standing by the gateway and she says to him, he's one of them. 
And Peter this time doesn't deny by playing dumb. He just blatantly denies. I don't know the man. And then some more time passes. And Peter, as he's still in the gateway, one of the bystanders who heard the servant girl comes up to him and says, certainly you are one of them for you, Galilean. They knew because of his dialect, because of his accent. It's like when, when you hear from somebody from South Texas and you know they have a cowboy's flag somewhere in their house. Like they could recognize him by his accent. Certainly you are one of them and Peter's had enough. It says that he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Let me put that in modern terms. I swear to God I don't know the guy. And if I'm lying, may I be struck down by lightning here where I speak. So he went from playing dumb to denying to a complete switch up of where he started just a few hours ago talking to Jesus. Earlier in the evening, Peter says, I would rather die than deny you, Jesus. Now, what is Peter saying? I would rather die than be associated with you, Jesus. Oh, how quick we are to change. And every time Peter denies him, it's a little more emphatic than the last. And then Peter hears it. The rooster crows. It says that Peter remembered what Jesus had said to him, and he wept. Peter has this moment of recognition or remembering. I don't know whether it's his shortcomings or his inability or his brokenness or just the sheer fact of what he had done. But in this moment, he realizes it, and he weeps. And that's what I want us to take notice of today. I want us to take a look at Peter, but not just Peter by himself. I want to take a look at Peter in contrast to Jesus and in how they follow God, how they are disciples, right? We look at Peter, that Peter's, at Jesus's arrest, Peter confronts God's will. He tries to change God's will. The guards come, what's he do? He cuts off the ear of one of the guards to either prevent or to delay God's will from happening. But what does Jesus do? He submits. He submits to the will of God. Not only does he say, let all the scriptures be fulfilled just a few verses earlier in the garden when he's praying, he's asking for the cup to be passed from him, for, the, for him to not have to experience the crucifixion. He ends it though with yet not what I will, but what you will, God. Jesus submits to God's will. Peter, we go back to Peter. Peter denies his royalty. Peter denies his own royalty. It's actually Peter who later will be the one to write. The people of God are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And yet, when Jesus is pressed about whether he's a follower of Jesus or not, of whether that royalty is his, he denies it. Because right here, his royalty doesn't mean comfort and happiness. Actually, in this moment, his royalty requires affliction and difficulty. But not our king. Our king claims his royalty. When he's on trial, 
And they ask him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? He says, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. That is a place that only a king sits. Jesus claims his royalty here. And finally, Peter fears. Peter's driven by fear. He's consumed by fear. His fear actually compromises his love for Jesus. Right after Jesus' arrest, he flees. And as they're taking Jesus to trial, he follows at a distance to where no one can know he's following Jesus. As he sits by the fire and someone asks him about it, he, he sneaks into the shadows so nobody else will recognize him. Peter fears. But Jesus boldly loves. In fact, the same thing he would fear, his death, actually ends up amplifying his love. Because despite any fear he could have had, because he wanted that cup to pass from him, despite all of that, his love outweighed his fear enough to where we understand how much he loved. And so any fear he might have just amplifies his love. This isn't a don't be like Peter, be like Jesus message. Why? Because we're like Peter. We're like Peter. And that's why we can learn from Peter. We can learn from Peter's mistakes, his mishaps. We can relate to Peter. And here's what I believe one of Peter's fatal mistakes was. He believed he was something that he wasn't. Peter thought he was so loyal that he would never deny Jesus. Peter thought he was so dedicated that he would never, it's inconceivable the idea that he would reject knowing Jesus. And that pride and that arrogance is ultimately what led to him falling into the trap of evil. And I think we can take the same lesson away today. Hill City, don't believe you're something you're not. Don't believe you're so wise you would never be made a fool. Don't believe you're so strong that you will never fall into temptation. Don't believe you're so holy you'll never be lured to do evil. And those are all just conceptual. Let's get practical. Don't believe you're so dedicated that you would never have an affair. Don't believe you're so honorable that you would never cheat business. Don't believe you're so informed that you would never make a bad leadership decision. Don't believe you're so committed to God that you would never Put family or comfort or success over God's will for your life. Because it's when we start believing prideful, arrogant things like that, when we're most susceptible to the works of evil in our lives. 
We build up this false sense of self-security, of self-sufficiency. And it compromises our ability to be aware of the traps that wait for us. Evil loves to use pride and arrogance as a trap. So search your heart today. Where are you believing something you're not? The Spirit has been kind to me as I've been preparing for today because he has given me something that I've realized is one of these places I am incredibly prideful and arrogant in and I need to confess it and repent of it. Here's my statement. I'm so mature that I would never do what some of these 26, 27, and 28-year-olds are doing. And that's a prideful and arrogant thought. And all it's going to do is set me up for failure. Don't believe you're something you're not. But Hill City, this is the gospel. This is the good news. So don't believe you're something you're not. But even more importantly, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you are. Peter denies Jesus three, to- three times. And spoiler, Jesus is going to be crucified, get buried in a grave, and three days later walk out of it. And shortly after that, Peter and some of the disciples are out in a boat. And someone from shore comes and yells at him and asks, have you caught anything? They're like, No. The man on shore says, cast your net to the other side. So the disciples are like, well, this hasn't been working. So they try it. And when they do so, the net fills so much up with fish that the net starts to break. And one of the disciples in the boat realizes who's on on shore and says, it's Jesus. And Peter, Peter, the man who in the last few days has told Jesus that he was wrong for thinking he would ever deny Jesus. Peter, the same man who abandoned Jesus in his darkest hours. Peter, the same man who has denied Jesus three times just as he predicted, sees Jesus on shore and doesn't waste a second and he jumps in the water and he gets back to Jesus as fast as he possibly can. This is where we can learn from Peter. Because listen, I've been in the place Peter's been before. Made mistakes, filled with shame and condemnation if I allow myself to be, to where I approach Jesus cautiously, like, does he really want to talk to me after what I've done? But Peter here, that's not his position. That's not his heart posture. No, he sees Jesus and he doesn't ask questions. He doesn't think, does he want to talk to me? Does he not want to talk to me? What does he do? He gets back to his Savior as soon as possible. How? Why? Because he knew who he was. He knew he was accepted and that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He knew he was called and that the power of God who saved us and and calls us to a holy calling. He knew he was significant and that he was made for good works. And he knew that he was set apart and that he was crowned with glory and honor. Jesus takes our identity and he creates a new one and he tells us who we are. Hill City, don't forget who you are. Because the same is true of you that was true of Peter. And you can know who you are because God tells you who you are. 
The world doesn't tell you who you are. Your friends and family don't. Your social media feeds don't. The news doesn't. God has told you who you are. And that's your identity. Nothing else. You also are accepted, called, significant, set apart. And the list goes on and on for the name and the identity that God gives his people. If you're serving communion, you can go ahead and make your way to get in position. Today, I want us to end with where we started. Jesus, in the beginning of the story, promises disciples before his arrest, before his betrayal, before they all abandon him, before Peter's denial, he promises them after his resurrection, he will return to them. I'm coming back to you. Despite all of those things, I'm coming back. And I pray today that we're reminded that that same promise has been made to us. That he's coming back that despite humanity's continued betrayal, despite humanity abandoning Jesus, despite humanity denying Jesus, despite all of that, he's coming back. And he'll be just as faithful to us as he was to the disciples and Peter. And he'll meet us with the same love and the same grace and the same restoration that he met the disciples with and that he met Peter with. And so as we get prepared to take communion, the call for us is to remember that that promise is true for us. So I want us to go back to Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is what Jesus referenced earlier when he said, let all the scriptures be fulfilled. This is about Jesus. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He'll say, as we come and take the meal together today, as we come and break the bread and drink the juice, May we remember that he bore the sins of many. He bore the sins of us and he makes intercession for the transgressors who are us. And so as we come and take part in this meal, may we be reminded of the goodness and the faithfulness and the way that he changes our identity. And may we not forget who we are. May we stand and come take part in the meal.